Now, friends, it's a great thrill to me to come to the book of Psalms. Very candidly, again, I feel overwhelmed when I come to this marvelous book. It's actually in the very center of the Word of God. And Psalm, I suppose, 119 is the very center of the Word of God. And that is a great psalm that exalts the Word of God. And the book of Psalms, though, has been called the book of worship, or the hymn book of the temple. It's been a wonderful book that's blessed the hearts of multitudes down through the ages. I have found that when I have been sick and have been in the hospital, or I have some problem that's pressing upon my mind and my heart, and I wake up at night, at times I find myself always turning to the Psalms. I invariably turn there and read, and I find always that they bless my own heart, my own life. Apparently down through the ages it's been that way. Ambrose, one of the great saints of the church, said the Psalms are the voices of the church. Augustine said they are the epitome of the whole Scripture. Martin Luther said they are a little book for all saints. And John Calvin said they are the anatomy of all parts of the soul. And I like that. Someone, I think, has said of the 126 psychological experiences, and I don't know where they got that number, by the way, that all of them are recorded in the book of Psalms and that it's the only book that has every experience that could happen to a human being. Every thought, every impulse, every emotion that sweeps over the soul are recorded in this book. That's the reason I suppose it always speaks to our hearts. It finds a responsive chord wherever we turn. And Hooker said, speaking of the Psalms, they are the choice and flower of all things profitable in other books. And Donnie put it, the Psalms foretell what any shall do and suffer and say. And that again is a wonderful statement. Herder called it a hymn book for all time. And Watts said, they are the thousand-voiced heart of the church. Now, I think we need to be probably a little bit more restrictive relative to the Psalms. The Psalms can be divided. For instance, there are Psalms that are known as pilgrim Psalms. There are Psalms that are known as imprecatory Psalms. There's many different classifications. I suppose the greatest is to say that there are messianic Psalms. And when we come to Psalm 2, we'll be talking about the Messianic Psalms. There are 16 of them in all. But privately and personally, I think that the book of Psalms, that there's not only 16 of them speaking of Christ. And, of course, that means they're quoted in the New Testament. But I think the 150 of them are all about Christ. I said at the beginning, this is a hymn book. And The hymn book, the way you spell hymn here is H-I-M. It's all about him. And I think as we go through the book of Psalms, 
We'll see that. But now in a more restrictive sense, the Psalms do have to do with Christ belonging to Israel and Israel belonging to Christ. Both are connected with the rebellion of man. There's no blessing to this earth until Israel and Christ are brought together. And the Psalms, I think, are Jewish in expectation and hope. And the worship of Psalms are actually Jewish. They adopted, of course, to the temple. But that doesn't mean that they do not have a spiritual application and interpretation for us today, actually. They do, as I said. There's where I turn more probably than any other portion of the Word of God. But we need to be a little exact in our interpretation of the Psalms. Now, God is not spoken of as a father in the book of Psalms. The saints are not called sons. He was God the Father, but not the Father God. The Psalms know nothing of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And the blessed hope of the New Testament is actually not in the Psalms. I think that is the thing that's led many astray in Psalm 2. The reference there is not the taking out of the church, but the reference to the coming of Christ there is his second coming, to this earth, to establish his kingdom, to reign in Jerusalem. All of that is in the book of Psalms. The Psalms are actually full of the second coming of Christ. And there's judgment in the Psalms. And the judgment does not apply to Christians under grace by any means, or to God's people that he's redeemed. The principle that runs through Psalms, the principle is stated in one Psalm, and I think probably I should reserve this for another time, but let me just mention it here. The principle that runs through the Psalms is that one Psalm states the principle, and then there will be several Psalms that will be explanatory. In fact, we'll start out with Psalm 1, and then we begin to move up, and it's just like going up a stairway. And then we come to Psalm 8, that great creation psalm that speaks of Christ. And so we will notice that there is always that ascending and also descending. And there are many other things that could be said about the psalms. For instance, it's the inspired book of prayer and praise. It is the soul's anatomy, the soul's epitome. It is the garden of Scripture of 218 quotations of the Old Testament and the New Testament, 116 are from the Psalms. Now, probably I ought to spend a few moments talking about the writers of the Psalms. Now, some people think that David wrote all the Psalms. And the fact of the matter is, he did not write all the Psalms. He is the sweet psalmist of Israel, and 73 of the Psalms are assigned to him. Almost, very candidly, half of the book of Psalms. There are 150 of them. Now, he could be the author of some of what are known as the Orphanic Psalms. That means they're orphan Psalms. We do not know who the writer is other than the Holy Spirit. And this man, David, of course, was peculiarly endowed to write these songs from the experiences 
as well as a special, I think, aptitude and the fact that he's writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, he arranged those that were in existence in his day for temple use. And the writers are like this. 73, written by David. Moses wrote one, the 90th. Solomon wrote two. The sons of Korah wrote 11. Asaph wrote 12. Heman wrote one, and that's the 88. Ethan wrote one, the 89. Hezekiah wrote 10. And then there are 39 orphanic psalms. That is, we do not know who the human writer was. Now, again, may I emphasize, Christ the Messiah is prominent throughout. You will remember that the Lord Jesus, when he appeared after his resurrection to those that were his own, you remember what he had to say to them at that time. And I'll turn and read that because it's important to see. In Luke 24, verse 44, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. The Psalms speak of Christ. And as I have said, I think that is the most important thing to discover, that Christ is the subject of the Psalms. I think he is the one that's the subject of praise in every one of them. And doesn't mean I'll be able to locate him in all of them because I'm not able to. But that doesn't mean he's not there. It just means that Vernon McGee is quite limited. Now, that leads me to say that the key word in the book of Psalms is hallelujah. That is, praise the Lord. That has become a Christian cliche today. But that is something that ought to be the swelling of a great emotion of the soul. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And we'll find that the great 150th Psalm, by the way, is the key Psalm. I feel like that is the one that probably tells out more than any other. And hallelujah occurs 13 times in six verses in this Psalm, by the way. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now, again, let me go over this. The Psalms record deeper devotion, intense feeling, exalted emotion, and dark dejection. The Psalms play upon the keyboard of the human soul with all the stops pulled out. They run the psychological gamut. The book has been called, therefore, the epitome and the anatomy of the soul. And it's also been designated as the garden of the Scriptures. The place that Psalms have held in the lives of God's people testifies to their universality. Yet they have a peculiar Jewish application. That is, for the nation Israel. They express the deep feelings of all believing hearts in all generations. And again, let me say it, the Psalms are full of Christ. There is a more complete picture of him in Psalms than in the Gospels. The Gospels tell us that he went to the mountain to pray, but the Psalms give us his prayer. The Gospels tell us that he was crucified, but the Psalms tell us 
what went on in his own heart during the crucifixion. The Gospels tell us that he went back to heaven, but the Psalms begin where the Gospels leave off and show us Christ seated in the heaven. There are many types of Psalms. And again, now let me go over this. This is important. All of them have Christ as the object of worship. Some are technically called Messianic Psalms. These record the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the glory, the priesthood, the kingship, and the return of Christ. There are the imprecatory Psalms, and they've caused most criticism, I think, because of their vindictiveness and prayers for judgment. Now, these Psalms come from a time of war and from a people who were under law, and they were looking for justice and peace on the earth. And friends, you can't get it without putting down unrighteousness and putting down rebellion. And God intends apparently to do just that. And he makes no apology for it, and he didn't even ask me to apologize for him, and I'm sure not going to. I think he's going to move in judgment on this earth. Now, the Christian is told to love his enemies, but here you find out there's some prayers that really are not very nice about the enemy. But it's to bring justice on this earth. And we'll look at them in time. And these Psalms, they look to a time coming on the earth when the Antichrist will be in power. Now, we have no reasonable basis to say how people should act and what they should say under these circumstances. Other types of Psalms, they're the penitential Psalms, the historic Psalms, the nature Psalms, the pilgrim Psalms, the Hallel Psalms, the missionary Psalms, the Puritan Psalms, the acrostic Psalms, and then praise of God's Word. Oh, this is a rich section that we're coming in here. We're going to mine for gold and diamonds here, friends. Then the book of Psalms are not arranged in a haphazard sort of way. Great many people think that they're arranged in just that way. I heard this statement made by a scientist. I have a statement in my book, How It All Began, and he said the chance of evolution working is just the same as taking all the letters of the alphabet and putting them in a tub and shaking them up and expect to bring out of it Webster's Dictionary. Just wouldn't come together like that. Now, a great many people think that the Psalms were dropped in a tub or a barrel and shaken up, and then when they were brought out, that's the way they were put together. But they are arranged orderly. Fact of the matter is, it's been noted for years that the book of Psalms are arranged and correspond to the Pentateuch of Moses. There's the Genesis section, and there is the Exodus section, and I have that in my notes and outlines, but let me give it to you just in case you're riding along in a car. You can't look at the notes, or maybe you don't have them. The first 41 Psalms are the Genesis section. The Exodus section begins with Psalm 42, goes through 72. The Leviticus section begins with Psalm 73, goes through 89. The Numbers section begins with Psalm 90, goes through 106. And the Deuteronomy section begins with Psalm 107 
goes through 150. Now you have a real correspondence. For instance, in this Genesis section that we're going to come to, why you have here man's sin in a state of blessedness. That's Psalm 1, the perfect man. And then you have the fall and the recovery of man in view. Psalm 1 is the perfect man. Psalm 2, the rebellious man. Psalm 3, the perfect man rejected. Psalm 4, conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent. Psalm 5, the perfect man in the midst of enemies. Psalm 6, the perfect man in the midst of chastisement, the bruising of his heel. And Psalm 7, the perfect man in the midst of false witnesses. And Psalm 8, the repair of man comes through man, the bruising of the head. All of this is here at the beginning, and we're going to see it in each one of the Psalms. In fact, Spurgeon put it like this. He says, the book of Psalms instructs us in the use of wings as well as words. It sets us both mounting and singing. And this is the book will make a skylark out of you instead of maybe a Another kind of bird, you see. A hundred and fifty spiritual songs set to music for the tabernacle and temple. And I think every one of them was set to music. I think if David didn't write some of them, he certainly is the one that set them to music, those that were written in his day. Now we come here in this very first psalm to the blessed man or the happy man. And the blessed man here, yes, Adam put in the Garden of Eden, but Adam fell. Who is really the blessed man? Well, I think Psalm 1 is actually a picture of Christ, though it's not quoted in the New Testament as such. But I believe it's a picture of him. And the blessed man here is contrasted to the ungodly man. And this is the psalm which opens the Genesis section. It begins with man instead of the material universe. The blessed man here is not the first Adam, but I think the last Adam, because it starts off, blessed is the man, happy is the man. And now it gives the practice of the blessed man. Verse 1, the negative side. Verse 2, the positive side. And here the blessed man is not in an ideal garden of Eden, but he's in the midst of the ungodly, the sinners, and the scornful. And we're going to see how he does. Now, here you have another picture. This is, I would say, a snapshot that the Lord has given to us of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the blessed man. Who is the blessed man? The happy man, if you please. We sometimes think of the Lord as being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And for some strange reason, all the pictures that have been painted of him reveal him as a very sad-looking individual. That actually was not true. Well, somebody says, but Isaiah said he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, I grant that. But why don't you read on in Isaiah and you'll find out that he didn't have any sorrows and griefs of his own. He has borne our sorrows. And he's carried our grief. It was mine that he was carrying, not his own. He was the happy Christ. And this is a picture of him. Blessed is the man 
that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now, do you notice the steps here? The man starts out walking, and then he gets into the counsel of the ungodly, and they get him to stand, and before long we see him now no longer walking, but he's standing in the way of sinners. And the sinners get him to sit down, and now we find him sitting in the seat of the scornful. Now you start out with the ungodly, and then you come to the sinners, and then the scornful. And actually, what you have here are the three steps, I think, of sinners today. There are different classes and condition of sinners. Some are worse than others. The ungodly, well, they just leave God out. And the sinners are openly, they are definitely committing sin. That's the reason they're sinners. And the scornful, they have rejected God. They are now looking down upon God. Well, these are the three. You have three types of sinners and three positions. The man standing, walking, sitting. Now, there's definitely regression here, deterioration and degeneration. Now, notice he does not walk, we're told here, in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, counsel means advice. He doesn't listen to them. Have you ever noticed that even the Lord Jesus never referred to his own reason or his own mind as the basis for a decision? He always put it on the basis of when he made a decision. It was the will of God. He never said to his disciples on an occasion, Now, fellas, we're going to take a trip up into Galilee again, and I've been thinking this over. This is the best thing to do according to my viewpoint, and after all, I'm smarter than you fellows. That's not the way that he approached it. He always say, I'm going to Jerusalem. Why? Because I'm going to do the will of my Father. Or I'm going into this area, and I'm going to do this thing because it's the will of my Father. And therefore, it's one thing to listen to counsel, and I think good counsel is fine, but certainly not the counsel of the ungodly. And we're told that we're to walk by faith. And walking by faith is not listening to the counsel of the ungodly. And who are the ungodly? Well, actually, the ungodly are those who just leave God out. There's no fear of God before their eyes. The ungodly is the man today that lives as if God does not exist. Around us, there are multitudes of people just like that. They're living as if God does not exist. They get up in the morning. They never turn to God in prayer. They never thank Him for the food or the day or for life and for health. They just keep moving right along, living it up. And they are ungodly. They just leave God out. Now, the sinner, he's the one that takes over because the ungodly gets the man to stand and we find him standing in the way of sinners. And who's the sinner that takes over? Well, sin here, it actually means to miss the mark. They don't quite live as they should live. They are the ones that the Scripture speaks of when it says, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And again, the Scripture says, All the ways of man are clean in his own eyes. 
The sinner actually may think he's all right, but he's a sinner. And the Scripture says to him, "...let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts." This is the sinner. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, the Lord Jesus, all of the weight of our guilt. Sinners. That's our picture. Now, who are the scornful here? Well, this is atheism. They not only deny God, but they exhibit an antagonism and hatred of it. You know, to deny God is actually the worst form of immorality. And believe me, God has something to say about the scorner. In Proverbs 3.34, he says, Surely he scorneth the scorners. Now notice verse 2 here. We have the positive side now. Before, this is what the happy man did not do. Now here is what the happy man does. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night, the positive side. You remember the Lord Jesus told about a man that was possessed with demons, and the demons went out of the man, and the man was all swept, cleaned, and garnished. That is, he got a good polished job. And he thought everything was all right. But it wasn't, because he's still owned by the demon. Finally, the demon wandered around, couldn't find any place to go, but met up with some other demons. And he came back, brought his friends with him. We're told the last estate of the man was worse than the first. A great many people today think if they just sort of clean up a little, that's all that is necessary. May I say to you, his delight is in the law of the Lord. That means joy. It's not a burden. Actually, the tear, the sigh, the groaning that's in this world, the heartache and the heartbreak and the broken homes are all a result of God's broken law. And this is the love of God. John says in 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. His commandments for believers are not only the Ten Commandments. The idea today that when you're saved by grace, it means you can be lawless and live as you please and do as you please. And that's just not the picture that we have given to us in the Word of God. In fact, the matter is, you can't be lawless for the very simple reason that, brethren, we've been called unto liberty. Paul says, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. You see, liberty is not license by any means. And somebody said to me, you do not keep the Ten Commandments to be saved. That's right. And the fellow says, then that means you can break them. It doesn't mean you can break them. It means, my friend, that you can't measure up to God's law. You have to have perfection, and you and I do not have it. And we have to come to God by faith. Now, we're called to live on a higher plane than the law is we're to have in our lives the fruits of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. These are the things. So there is the discipline and the guidance of grace. And that's a very important thing, by the way. So that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law, we're told, he meditates. Now, what does it mean to meditate? Actually, it's a picture of a cow chewing a cud. 
Thomas A. Kempis put it like this. He says, I have no rest, but in a nook with a book. And the book is the Word of God. It means to meditate upon it. Chew the cud. Picture of a cow chewing a cud. But follow me, Ashwood, back in 1688, said, Meditation chews the cud. Old cow goes out on the field of a morning, you know, and eats the tender grass with the dew in it. My, it's quite delicious. It's a good breakfast food. And so she comes and lies down under the tree. It's hot in the daytime. And I'm told a cow has about, what, three stomachs? So what she does is take that nice breakfast food that she had, the tender grass that had the dew on it, and she brings that back up and chews it again and moves it over to another tummy. Then she's having lunch, you see. And it means to read the Word of God and then meditate upon it. You remember James says, that some people look at the Word of God like a mirror, and then they leave and they forget what manner of man they are. Meditate upon the Word of God. Let the Word of God have its way with you. Now, in his law doth he meditate day and night. My friend, God hasn't any plan or program for you to grow and develop as a believer apart from the Word of God. Now, you can become as busy as a termite in your church or in church activity and probably with about the same effect of a termite. You'd be just as busy, and you'll never grow. You don't grow by activity. You grow, my friend, by meditating upon the Word of God. Only as you and I masticate the Word of God, we chew it, if you please. It's a nice figure of speech, I think. Now, this is the practice of the happy man. Now, notice the power of it. Where does he get his power? Well, we're told here he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And rivers here, that's the superlative in the Hebrew. It's hyperbole, actually, for abundance. He's planted by plenty of water. And he's a tree, if you'll notice. And he's a planted tree. God's trees are actually not wild-grown trees by any means. They are planted trees. And that means, I think, to be born again. Over in Isaiah 61, 3, it says, "...to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified." God, you see, doesn't use wild-grown trees. They're not wild-grown. They've been born again. They've been taken up and set out in God's garden, if you please, and set out by the river of water. Now, what is the river of water, by the way? Well, that's the Word of God. Somebody says, are you sure about that? Oh, I know it, because if you turn right back over in Isaiah to the 55th chapter and verse 10, he says, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. It shall accomplish that which I please. It shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. And God wants his word to just come down like rain. 
I think radio is a fine way to, you know, just scatters it out everywhere. And that's what we're to do. And the Word of God is to be gotten out. And it's water. And it'll produce, it'll cause trees to grow. And that's where God's trees are planted. It provides drink and sustenance and also cleansing. You see, there's washing of water by the Word. And the psalmist says over in Psalm 104, verse 16, he says, the trees of the Lord are full of sap. Now, he doesn't say that God's trees are sap. He just says they're full of sap. And that sap's the Word of God, the trees of Lebanon, which he's planted. And now he says something else about them. You see, the power is in the Word of God. And we're told that they bring forth their fruit in its season. That is a very interesting thing, that God's trees, they don't bring fruit all the time. They bring forth fruit in their season. I hear today this statement made in this day of activity and nervous action that the primary business of a Christian is soul winning. I disagree with that. Word of God doesn't say that. In 2 Corinthians, 2nd chapter, verse 14, listen to this. Now, thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ to them that are saved and to them that are perished. Now, that's not all. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death. To the other, the savor of life unto life. Who's sufficient for these things? Well, I'm not. But I do know this, I'm called to give out the Word of God. And it's the business of the Holy Spirit to bring men to Christ. My business is to give out the Word of God. And we are experiencing on this program multitudes of people turning to Christ. I'm amazed at it, but we don't do it. <laughs> the Spirit of God does that. We just give out the Word of God. And our business is to give out the Word of God, and when we do, He always causes us to triumph. Well, suppose nobody accepts Christ. Well, we are savor of life to them that are saved. We are savor of death unto those that perish. My responsibility is to give you the Word of God. Your responsibility is to do something about it. And my responsibility ends when I give it out. It's up to you from then on. I used to tell folk when I'd give the invitation, you live here today unsaved, well, it's too bad, because you couldn't go into God's presence, say you hadn't heard the Word of God. Well, very frankly, I'm not responsible anymore. I've given out the Word of God, and I've really become your enemy, because you couldn't tell God you hadn't heard the gospel. And we want it to be true also of this radio ministry. Now, will you notice that the important thing here is that the child of God bring forth his fruit in his season. Now, he not only does that, but his leaf also shall not wither. Now, he's to have out his witness all the time. God's trees are evergreens, outward testimony. A friend of mine said years ago he was in New York City in summertime, in August it was. He came to a famous church there, and my, it was a fine coliseum, I should say, mausoleum. And he says that up on top it had carved in letters there in the marble, this is the house of God, the very gate of heaven. And down beneath there was a temporary sign says closed during July and August. So the gate of heaven was closed there 
during July and August. Well, God's trees, the leaf shall not wither. But whatsoever he does, it'll prosper. Now, God promised material blessings to his people back in the Old Testament. But today, he doesn't necessarily do that. John Trapp put it like this, Outward prosperity, if it follows, close walking with God is sweet, as the cipher, when it follows a figure, adds to the number, though it be nothing by itself. Now, finally, you have the permanency of the blessed man. Notice the insecurity. The ungodly are not so. What? They're like the chaff which the wind driveth away. And then notice here two ways. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Two men, two ways, two destinies, and one's a dead-end street and leads to death. The other leads to life. God makes the difference, and he says what's right and wrong. We're living in a day that's not sure. Well, God is sure. God divided light from darkness, the waters above from the waters below. And what are we told? For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And perish simply means he's lost. What a word of finality, if you please. The expectation of the wicked shall perish, Proverbs 10:28. He says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that findeth. And the wide, broad way is like a funnel, but you come in at the big end, but it gets narrow and narrow, and finally leads to death. But the narrow way, you come in by Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and it just keeps leading out. You come in the other end of the funnel, and it just gets broader and broader. And he came that we might have life, might have it more abundantly. What a picture of the happy man that's presented here in Psalm 1. Now, friends, I consider it very much worthwhile to spend this time with these first two Psalms as they're more or less of an introduction. And as I have already indicated there is a very close connection in these psalms. They are not really totally unrelated, and they're arranged in a very definite order. And I think that's one of the more noticeable features about the book. There is this systematic arrangement, and they were not just put together in a haphazard way. And in the first psalm here, why... Actually, what we have is the perfect man and the happy man. That's the last Adam, the Lord Jesus. I consider it a messianic psalm, though it's not quoted as such in the New Testament. But now when we come to Psalm 2, we do find a psalm that is truly the first messianic psalm. And it is so quoted in the New Testament. They're about seven definite quotations in the New Testament from this psalm here. You find it in Acts 4 and Acts 13, Hebrews 1, references to it in Revelation 2 and 12 and 19. About seven different, very definite 
references in the New Testament to this psalm, so we can call it truly a messianic psalm. And it's one of 16 psalms that are truly messianic. But as we've already indicated before, we believe actually that all the psalms speak of him. This book of Psalms is truly a hymn book, and it's really all about him. And so in Psalm 1, the perfect man, the happy man, but in Psalm 2, we have the rebellious man. We see mankind in rebellion against God. What a picture this is of Genesis. And this is the Genesis section of the book of Psalms. Man created perfect. Adam, number one, in the Garden of Eden. And what happened? He became a rebellious man, ran away from God, no longer seeking God, but actually getting away from him and no capacity for him. We find that now in the children of Adam, mankind, if you please, in Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 has been called the drama of the ages. It has also been labeled... Not only that, but it contains a decisive declaration concerning the outcome of events and forces that are at work in the world today. You have this psalm divided, I think, here as you would divide not so much a drama or so much a play, but I look upon it rather as a television program. And what you have here is a camera on earth and a camera in heaven. And that's very dramatic, by the way, because we've in our day been treated to a camera on the moon, and we've been seeing pictures from the moon. That's quite exciting. And then we have been seeing pictures that were taken from Mars by a mechanical device that apparently is rotating around the planet Mars. And that, again, is quite exciting. But here you have a camera on Earth, but you also have a camera in heaven. And it goes something like this. First of all, mankind comes on camera. And you have the camera on Earth on. And we have little man playing his part. As Shakespeare expressed it, little man that struts and performs his little part on the stage of life, and then passes off. Even individuals are not here very long. Three score and ten is pretty good length of time for any individual on this earth. And actually, mankind hasn't been on this earth too long. Mankind is a sort of a, shall we say, Johnny-come-lately, and man plays his little part. Then the camera on earth goes off, camera in heaven comes on, And God the Father has a word to say. And then the camera shifts to his right hand, and God the Son speaks his part. And then the camera in heaven goes off, the camera on earth comes on, and the final word is given by God the Holy Spirit on earth as he gives a word of warning and a word of wooing to mankind here upon this earth. Now, with that in mind, let's look at it as a television program. Camera on Earth comes on, and mankind is on stage now, and it's time for him to play his part. Now, is he going to be a noble individual in a wonderful relationship with God? Well, let's look at him. 
Why do the nations rage, we're told, and the peoples imagine a vain thing? Now, here we see the coming together of the nations of the world and the peoples, the masses, and they're coming together and they imagine a vain thing. Actually, the word means empty. Whatever's brought them together in this great protest movement will never be fulfilled. It's an empty thing. It's all dream stuff. It can never come to pass. Well, let's see what it is. Verse 2, "...the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together." Now, here is an unusual protest movement. It doesn't come from the hoi polloi out there or some minority group, but it comes from the establishment. That is, here are the kings, the political rulers, and then the rulers that are mentioned here, they are the religious rulers, and they come together. Here is politics and church and religion joining together. And what's brought them together in this tremendous rage and this empty thing? Well, here's the alarming thing. They are coming together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying. Now, they're coming together against Jehovah and against his Messiah, for that is the word here. And that word Messiah brought into the New Testament in the Greek is Christos, and it comes to us in our language as Christ. Here is a great movement, a worldwide movement against God and against Christ. The question has always been, when did this movement begin? Well, it began 1,900 years ago, we're told, over in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, we're told that at the first persecution of the church, the apostles, when they were let go, they came back to the church, and the church lifted up their voice and thanked God. And then they quoted this psalm, "...who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the nations rage? And the people imagined vain things. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together." against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, when did this begin? We are not left to our imagination here or our own devices. The Spirit of God gives us the interpretation, and here it is. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the nations and the people of Israel, were gathered together. Here you find the Gentiles with their leaders, and religion with its leaders, the political leaders and the religious leaders coming together against God and against Christ. Now, this is something that seems unbelievable. And somebody says, well, it's hard for me to believe that today. I don't think the world is against Christ. Well, let's look at this a moment. This movement began way back when Herod and Pontius Pilate were made friends, and for the first time the religious rulers and Pilate, they agreed, and Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross. That began a movement that has begun to snowball, and it's come down through the centuries, and it will finally break 
like a mighty crescendo upon this earth, a great worldwide rebellion against God and against Christ. Now, many of us believe that will find its final fruition during the time of the great tribulation after the church is removed from the earth. But it's hard for people to believe that today. Now, I personally, and in the book that we have, What Is This World Coming To?, I go into a great deal of detail here. But let me just say this, that the world today is not opposed to the liberal Jesus. The Jesus of liberalism never lived. And I think I can prove that because there's no record of him. The Jesus of liberalism, he was not virgin-born. He did not perform miracles. He did not die for the sins of the world. He did not rise bodily from the grave. Now, the only Jesus that ever lived is recorded in the Word of God. And he was virgin-born. He performed miracles. He died for the sins of the world. And he rose again for our justification. Now, that's the only Jesus that we have any historical documents of. But the Jesus of liberalism, of course, is a figment of the imagination. He's the Jesus of superstar. And all of this type of thing appeals to the man of the world. But the Jesus of the Bible, they're not prepared to accept him yet. And we find today a great nation, and it is a great nation, Russia, built on the political philosophy of atheism. Not just neutral, but active atheism, opposition against God. And that's unusual. That's just happened in our day. That is the day of many of us, I can remember, when Russia was considered a third-rate nation. And actually, we pulled them through World War I and World War II. And now they probably are the best-prepared nation for war of any nation in the world today. And that's atheistic. The great nations of the past were never atheistic. They were polytheistic. That is, they worshiped many gods. Now, there's active opposition against God in this country and against Christ. You say, how do you know that? How can you demonstrate it? Certainly. Verse 3, let us break their bands asunder. God has put certain bands on mankind. Let me just mention one of them. Marriage is it. Men today are trying to get rid of marriage. God didn't give marriage just to Christians. He gave marriage for all of mankind, for the good of mankind. He didn't give marriage to hurt mankind. It's God who made them male and female and begat in them a love one for another. In fact, when God created woman, she was to be a helpmate. That means the other half of man, to respond to him, to make him complete. You see, it's God that brought that wonderful love relationship into the world, you see. But they want to break that marriage vow today, that band, and get rid of it, and then cast away their cords from us. So today they want to get rid of the Ten Commandments. They want to get rid of God's laws that protects human life and protects property and considers certain things sacred and says certain things are right and other things are wrong. That's what they're rebelling against today. 
Now, what's God going to do about this? Well, the camera on earth goes off. It's a terrible thing taking place down here. And my friend, this is a wicked world you and I live in today. And what happens? Well, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Now, that's not the laughter of humor, though God does have a sense of humor. What you have here, it's the laughter of the utter preposterousness of it all. Imagine little man rebelling against God, coming out, shaking his fist in the face of heaven and saying to God, come on out and fight me. Well, God laughs. It's so utterly ridiculous, friends. Little mankind down here, I don't care who he is. He may talk big and he may do like, who was it that huffed and puffed and tried to blow the house down? Well, there are a lot of little men that are talking about their opposition against God and they're opposing him. They won't be around long. I can remember when Mussolini did a lot of talking. I haven't heard from him recently. And Stalin did the same thing. And we've had a lot of politicians that made some great statements in the past. Don't hear from them anymore. May I say to you, little man's played his little part here on the stage of life. But it's ridiculous. It's preposterous for him to oppose God. God laughs. And what's he going to do with them? Well, he's going ahead with his program, and his program is to put his king on the holy hill of Zion. That's God's great purpose, and he's going to do that. And the Lord Jesus now speaks, and the camera turns on him. And verse 7, he says, I'll declare the decree. And those of you acquainted with theology know that the Lord Jesus executes all the decrees of God. And then we have, The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. You want to hear that very carefully, because there are those that say that this means Jesus is a creature, that he was just born like anybody else. But that's not what the Word of God says. Paul, in his great sermon in Antioch and Pisidia, and I think that's one of his greatest sermons, he made this statement, and when he did, now you have the interpretation of the Holy Spirit of what is meant here by this statement. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. Now listen to this. This is an interpretation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is Acts thirteen thirty-three. Listen to it. In that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Begotten him in birth at Bethlehem? No, not talking about that. And begotten him out of Joseph's tomb in resurrection. That's what he's talking about here. It has no reference at all to that. And he says here, Ask of me and I'll give thee the nations for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth, for thy possession. And that's not a missionary text, by the way. It doesn't have any reference to the missionary program today because notice what it's really saying. How will he come in possession of the nations of the world? By the preaching of the gospel? No, not at all. Listen to him. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, this is the way that he's coming the second time to the earth to put down rebellion. Some people don't like it. But read the 19th chapter of Revelation. 
He's coming to make war. Somebody said, well, I thought he was the prince of peace. My friends, the way you make peace on this earth is to put down all rebellion. And that's what he's going to do. And I think this is rather practical. This gets right down where the rubber meets the road. This is right down where you and I live today. It's right down at the nitty-gritty. The only way in the world you're going to put down rebellion in this world is for him to come and deal with it. And he'll break them. Oh, he says he'll do it. And he'd never ask me to apologize for him, so I won't. Now the Holy Spirit speaks in verse 10. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. He's always got a message through to the rulers of the world, beginning with Pharaoh in Egypt, when Joseph was his prime minister. Daniel was the prime minister of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, later on of Cyrus in Media Persia. God's been able to get a message through to these rulers, but he has a message for us today. Verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Dr. George Gill used to say to us in class, that's the Old Testament way of saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And that's what the Spirit of God is saying to men today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember who really kissed him when he was here on earth? Judas. And you remember even at the last minute, our Lord said to him, wherefore, friend, art thou come? He could say to Judas, you may have fulfilled prophecy. Maybe you were predestined to betray me, but you're not predestined to be lost. I can still call you friend, and you can change that kiss from a hot kiss of betrayal into a kiss of acceptance. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. You could put your trust in him. You will have to do with Jesus Christ. I don't care who you are. Either come to him today and receive him as Savior, or someday you will be brought before his presence for judgment. He is either your Savior or your judge. And he can't be both. He'll just have to be one. Today you can have him as your Savior. And the Holy Spirit, even right now, is saying to you, Kiss the Son. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And the word still goes out, Blessed are all they who put their trust in him. This is a marvelous psalm. Looks forward to the second coming of Christ. Goes back and gathers up the first coming of Christ. When God raised him from the dead, he's seated today at God's right hand. He's coming someday to establish his kingdom. Now today, friends, our study brings us to the third psalm. Last time we finished the second psalm, and we spent some time with Psalm 1 and 2. We saw the perfect man in Psalm 1, the rebellious man in Psalm 2, the rebellion of mankind against Almighty God and how it will be ended by the coming of Christ to the earth. Now, we have from Psalm 2 all the way to the next messianic psalm, which is Psalm 8, we have a veritable stairway. And this is the section, as well as the rest of the psalms, that reveal that there is a wonderful organization. 
That is, the most noticeable feature, I think, about the psalm is their systematic arrangement. Now, you see that as you move through here. So, Psalm 3 up through Psalm 8, we have sort of a bridge. I like to think of it as a stairway. We just keep going up to this next great messianic psalm, and that's the 8th psalm. Now, we saw in Psalm 2, prophetically, of course, the rejection of God's anointed, the Messiah. And we know something about that today, and after 1,900 years, he's still rejected in the world. And in the eighth psalm, the next messianic psalm, we find the prophecy when he, who is the Son of Man, he's going to put all things under his feet. Now, these five psalms furnish the glue that hold these two psalms together. They come between They describe primarily the godly remnant of Israel during the time of the absence of the Messiah from the earth, and especially during that end of the age, which we call the Great Tribulation period. Well, we don't call it that. The Lord Jesus labeled it the Great Tribulation period. And you have here the record of their trials, their sorrows, their persecutions, their problems, and their sins, it's all here. And we also see of the confidence in God and the promises of God and the prayers here for deliverance in the part of the godly remnant. And we are going to see here something of the historical background and the circumstances of these different psalms and why they were penned and who penned them. David, of course, wrote most of them. Now, we also see here the trials and the sorrows of this godly remnant in Israel. Now, also, we find here that all the saints of God share in this world very much the same trials and sorrows. They're common to all of God's people, and it doesn't make any difference who they are where they live, and what period of history they lived in. And the comfort that is given in these psalms is for all of God's children. So that, let me put it like this, that we have in these psalms, first of all, the personal experience of David. We'll see that in a moment in Psalm 3. Then that is the primary, of course, interpretation. Then there is the application, and I think a direct application, to the nation Israel and to the godly remnant in the Great Tribulation period. But there is also the application to God's people anywhere, anytime in the history of the world. So that if we look at the Psalms from that viewpoint, actually it'll make it more meaningful to us. Now what we have here in Psalm 3 is this. It's called a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, that tells us about this psalm. This is the thinking of David. This is what went on in the heart of David when he had to flee from Jerusalem, when Absalom, his son, had rebelled against him. It's a very real psalm, therefore, 
because it came out of the personal experience of this man. Now, we have here, therefore, that experience of David. You see, this man was, I think, in a real bad spot because he became an outcast and a fugitive from his own city, which is called the city of David, Jerusalem, and from his own people where he was king because Absalom, his son, rebelled against him and was seeking his life. He intended to put him to death. And your heart can't help but go out to David. You remember when we went through that historical section, David fleeing, and there was the enemy actually cursing him on the sidelines. And David's mighty man, and one of his captains, Joab, says, let me go over and run a spear through him. David said, oh, no. David knew there was coming to him that which Nathan the prophet had said would come to him from God because of his sin. You remember, David didn't get by with his sin at all. When Absalom raised his rebellious heart and that vicious hand against his father, why, your sympathy goes out to David. But you remember, Nathan had said to him way back in Second Samuel, the 12th chapter, verse 11, listen to this, "'Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I'll raise up evil against thee out of thine own house.'" Why? Because David had sinned greatly. And now Absalom leads this rebellion. And this man, David, he's actually now hated without a cause. God had graciously forgiven him and restored him, but he has to reap his sin. And it's in Absalom's rebellion that he does it. And we find here his enemies had increased on all sides, for the hearts of the men of Israel went after Absalom. In fact, that's what the Scripture says, that the hearts of Israel went after Absalom. He was an attractive young man. And, of course, he was a good, clever politician, is able to promise the people a great many things, actually never was able to deliver, of course. Now, there were many that rose up against David. Shimei, you remember, was the one who reviled him and cursed him. Many ridiculed him. And he went out barefooted and weeping and in sackcloth and ashes, and he passed over Kidron. May I say, it just looked like there was no help for him at all anywhere, and he went out. Well, listen to David, will you, with that kind of a background. This is the psalm. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. He's speaking right out of his heart, friends, as he leaves Jerusalem. And he says, Many are they who say of my soul, There is no help for him in God. God has forsaken him, but God hasn't. And thank God today, friends, when somebody says to me, I can't understand how God would put up with a man like David I always feel like saying to a person like that, well, if God will put up with David, maybe he'll put up with you and he'll put up with me. <laughs> Thank God he's this kind of a God, friends, that he puts up with folk like this and will forgive them when they come to him. But that doesn't mean David didn't pay for his sin. He sure did. And so he says, many are they who say of my soul, there's no help for him in God. And then we have this word, Selah. Now, what does the word Selah mean? Well, 
there's been a great deal of discussion as just what selah really means. It occurs about 71 times in the Psalms. I believe all the Psalms were set to music and to be played by an orchestra and is sung by a great choir. I think that Jerusalem became famous throughout the world. People came there to hear the music of singing these psalms. And I think this probably was a musical rest. And I think it was a pause, some kind of a pause, probably a musical pause. And I personally think for you and me, that is, if you're just a common sort of a layman that doesn't understand music, it means stop, look, and listen. (laughs) That's what you used to have at railroad crossings. You remember the old cross that was there? Stop, look, and listen. Remember as a boy, when my dad would drive a buggy into Snyder, Texas, sitting in the buggy, we stopped at the railroad crossing. There wasn't but one, of course. And I don't think it was a train in 10 miles of the place, but we always stopped. Stop, look, and listen. And a great many folk today, when they come to the Word of God, ought to do a lot of stopping, looking, and listening. And that's what we have here Now, listen to David. This probably ends the first stanza. And now he says, I lay down and slept. I awake for the Lord sustained me. Morning Psalm, as this has been called. And I'm glad the New Schofield Bible has put that at the top here of this psalm. A morning psalm. This is a good one to start the day with. In spite of all of the problem and trouble, David trusted the Lord. He could sleep at night. He wasn't able to get hold of an aspirin tablet or any of these other miracle drugs that can put you to sleep today. But he just trusted the Lord and pillowed his head on the promises of God. And he went to sleep. And he says, I awake, for the Lord sustained me. And he says, I'll not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Why, though the whole world be against him, David said, I'm not going to be afraid. (laughs) Someone said to Cromwell, he's considered, by the way, the bravest man that ever lived. They said, what is the explanation of your bravery? Well, he says, if there is any bravery in my conduct, it's because, he says, I fear God, therefore I have no man to fear. Martin Luther also took that position. And if there was more fear of God, there would be less of this licking the boots of men today. There's some men that are going around with their tongues black. They spend their time licking other men's shoes. You know why? Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. The thing that will give you courage is to fear God, and then you'll have no other man to fear at all. And so this man said, uh, David, there might be 10,000. I'm not afraid of them. Now listen to him, verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me. O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. And that's where it hurts, on the cheekbone. If you ever get hit there, it'll really knock you out. And so David knew about that. He says his enemies had been smitten on the cheekbone. He says, Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Not able to bite him anymore. Now listen to him here. He says, Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. And this is a great scripture. Actually, the word belonging is not here. Salvation unto the Lord. The Lord is the author of salvation. 
David never thought salvation was a coin you could put in your pocket and lose. He never thought it was something he'd have to work out. Salvation was the gift of God. Salvation's unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. And then this wonderful word here of Selah. And you'll notice that in this psalm he said some wonderful things about God. Back in verse 3, "...but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me." Did you notice that? And then the next thing, "...you're my glory." And then he says, "...you're the uplifter of my head." Now, as a shield, why, he covers those that are his own. We're told to take today the shield of faith as believers. And David knew something about what the shield would do, and he'd used it. And the glory, that's his belief in the presence of God. For the cloud of glory, you remember, was for Israel. It was a visible sign of the presence of God in his midst. Now, we walk today by faith, and the glory of God's with us, friend. He makes himself real to those that are his own today. And then he calls himself the uplifter of his head. And how could that be? Well, he'd promised to build David a house and give him a blessing and a glory and a kingdom. And he says, he's going to uplift my head. (laughs) And today, my friend, we may be down, but he's going to lift us up. This is a marvelous psalm, is it not? Now, the next psalm, Psalm 4, is in this same line. Psalm 3 was the perfect man rejected. And I've labeled this psalm here, the conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And that's what is going on in the world today. And this is called an evening psalm. We'll see why. And it divides itself something like this. You have a cry and the first three verses. Then a correction in the next two verses. Then you have confidence in verses 6 and 7 and 8. This is the psalm. It's a brief one. And this psalm, it has a musical inscription. It says, "...to the chief musician on Neginoth, a psalm of David." Now, what's a Neginoth? Well, apparently, it must be some sort of an instrument And it's the belief of a great many today that it is something like a stringed instrument. Actually, it's probably a stringed instrument solo. And he sings praises in the midst of the church, we're told. That's the way the writer to the Hebrews uses this psalm. And here it's a great cry at the beginning. The great refuge for the people of God in time of trouble is always prayer. And God is their shield, as we've already seen. Listen to him. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. That is, distress means pressures, and the pressures of life are great. What do we need today? We need the encouragement that we find in the Word of God. And we have that assurance given us that the Lord is nigh unto them that call upon Him, to all that call upon Him in truth. That's Psalm 145:18. And then again, "...and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I'll deliver thee. Thou shalt glorify me." 
And that is a wonderful promise of God in Psalm 50, 15. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I'll answer. And while they're yet speaking, I'll hear. It's what Isaiah said in the 65th chapter, verse 24. And then Psalm 18, 6 is very personal. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. And again, as for me, I'll call upon God and Jehovah shall save me. That's Psalm 55, 16. Psalm 86, 7 says, In the day of trouble I'll call upon thee, for thou shalt answer me. And then again he says, He shall call upon me, and I'll answer him. I will be with him in trouble, and I will deliver him and honor him. That's Psalm 91, 15. The Bible's just filled with these wonderful promises. And that's the cry here of the psalmist, that God be with him. Now he says here, O ye sons of man, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after falsehood? Selah. But know that the Lord hath set apart him who is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call upon him. How wonderful it is. God will hear our prayer. Then we have the correction that's given here, and it's sort of a warning He says, "...stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still." Selah. The word is, tremble and sin not. We need a little bit more trembling than we're getting today. And then he says here, "...offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord." How wonderful this is. Be angry and sin not is the way that Paul translated it when he quoted it in Ephesians. Now notice the confidence, the assurance here of faith. And he says here, there are many that say, who shall show us any good? A lot of people saying today, well, everything's gone to the bow wows. Nothing can turn out right today. Well, Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. How we need that today. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their grain and their wine increased. David's heart, like the rest of us, it failed in time of trouble. And David here found out that God was good to him. And around them were these unbelievers among their own people mocking them. And they were the ones that said, God's not going to do anything. But God did do something for them. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their grain and their wine increase. And God today, and he alone can make good for us. Now it's an evening psalm. Listen to this. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. This, by the way, is a good sleeping pill at night. Have you ever tried Psalm 4? It's a little better than Psalmonex, by the way, and it's lots better than aspirin, Psalm 4. Oh, how wonderful these psalms are for us today and what they'll mean to God's people in that day of trouble. Now, friends, today our study brings us to the fifth psalm. And in this section... 
between the first Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2, to the second Psalm 8. We have these five psalms here that are knit very close together. They actually tell a story. They're, first of all, a picture of the personal experience of David. And in the second place, they reveal prophetically the picture of the nation Israel in that day of real struggle that is coming, the great tribulation period. And it has a very real application for us today, for great principles are involved here. And it has a message for God's people in all ages and in all time. Now, as we come to this fifth psalm here, I've given it the heading, The Perfect Man in the Midst of Enemies. And this is a psalm written by David, and it has as its inscription to the chief musician upon Neoloth. And the other psalm, four, we saw last time, was Neginoth. And there's a difference in the two. The other had to do with stringed instruments, and this has to do with wind instruments, and it means flutes. I think that's been the generally accepted application or instructions. The other one was to be given to the tune or to the accompaniment of these instruments, and now the flutes are uppermost here. David, as you know, was the sweet psalmist in Israel, He set most of these to music. There are others think that a choir also sang this psalm to the accompaniment, of course, upon flutes as the interpretation is given. I think the tone and general character of this psalm very easily perceived. As someone else has put it very nicely, it was Pridham. He said, it's a prayer of faith sent up from a heart in which the discernment of God as the shield and rewarder of them that seek him is found in union with a very deep sense of the prevailing evil and ungodliness which daily present themselves to the contemplation of the faithful. And the vexing of the soul because of the abundance of iniquity is thus a leading feature in its general expression." And here is a very interesting statement that Pridham makes. He says, "...hence patience is wrought in tribulation, joy abounds in the sure hope of a deliverance which is deferred only by the counsels of unerring love." And I think that pretty well, friends, sums up this very magnificent psalm. It's been called a morning psalm. Notice how it begins... And I'll give you a little different translation here. Give ear to my words, O Jehovah. Give heed to my meditation. Listen to the voice of my crying, my King and my God. For to thee do I pray. Jehovah, in the morning shalt thou hear my voice. In the morning will I come before thee and expectantly look up. It's a morning prayer. And that could be here as we had a morning psalm and an evening psalm, a morning psalm in Psalm 3, an evening psalm in Psalm 4. Well, this could be called a morning prayer, that in the morning his voice would be lifted unto God. Now, we see here 
that in the morning is a mighty good time to lift your heart to God in prayer. Now, again, let me give a little different translation here that I think would be very helpful to you. For no God art thou whom wickedness can please. The evil man cannot dwell with thee. The arrogant shall not dare to stand before thine eyes. Thou hatest all workings of iniquity. Thou wilt destroy them that speak lies. The man of blood and deceit Jehovah abhorreth. As for me, through thy great mercy will I enter thy house. I will fall down facing thy holy temple in fear. Now, this is the comfort of the godly. And when you look about you today, many of you have a sinking feeling as you see the evil that is abroad today and the iniquity. It's something that makes you sick at heart. What is the comfort of the godly in days like these? Here is the psalmist, that the hatred that he has in his heart of evil reveals that he's on God's side. God also hates it, also makes God sick at his tummy to look down at this sinful world today. And I'm not being irreverent when I say that. You see, wickedness does not please God, and nor will it please those who know God. Evil cannot dwell with him, for God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. You know, Habakkuk put it like this when the Lord told him that the Chaldeans were going to invade God's land. Why, Habakkuk said, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. You know, wickedness may prosper for a time, but the day is surely coming which will bring destruction and eternal shame to those that practice lies and iniquity. God has made it very, very clear that there is coming a day when judgment will come on this. And evil today is not going to prevail. God's made that very clear. Over in Revelation 21.8, he puts it like this, "...but the fearful..." and unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, I may sound like a square reading that to you. I hope I do, because that's exactly what I am, and I believe the judgment of God is coming upon this earth. Now, that brings us down to something in this psalm here. Let me read this to you in a little different translation. Jehovah, lead me in thy righteousness because of my foes. What he's saying is this. My enemies are watching me. They want me to stumble and fall, but I want to glorify you. Therefore, he's praying that God will not let him stumble and fall and that God will lead him. He says, "...make thy path straight before me, for in their mouth is nothing trustworthy. They are inwardly full of depravity. Their throat is an open sepulcher." And by the way, that's quoted in the third chapter of Romans by Paul. They make their tongue smooth, their glib of tongue. So many folk are like that today. They don't seem to know what the truth is, and they certainly never tell it. 
Hold them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Thrust them out in the multitude of their transgressions. They've rebelled against thee, and all who seek refuge with thee shall rejoice. Forever shall they shout for joy because of thy protection, and they shall exult in thee who love thy name. For thou, Jehovah, will bless the righteous with favor, wilt thou surround him as with a shield. You see, prayer is the resource and the recourse of this man when he looks at the wickedness that is about him. And he prays for that guidance that will enable him to walk in a way that he'll not bring disrepute upon the name of God. Let me read verse 10. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they've rebelled against thee. And in the time of the great tribulation, this will be a proper prayer. God intends to take vengeance. He just told us today to walk by faith and take that position that our Lord took. Now, this is the first imprecatory prayer that's recorded in the Psalms. Now, later on, I'll have a time to develop that. But there are certain prayers here, especially you'll hear David praying a prayer for justice, for God to intervene and to bring judgment. And some of it's very harsh, by the way. And, in fact, Isaiah could do that. In Isaiah 64, 1, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. Judgment must fall someday upon the transgressors. It's coming. And in the time of the Great Tribulation, it's actually before God comes to take vengeance. Scripture makes it very clear. That's what he'll do. The Lord, you remember, told a parable concerning a widow who prayed, Avenge me of mine adversary. And the judge says, Well, I'm going to have to do something about this because this widow keeps worrying me. And then here is the thing. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect? And here it's Israel, which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. And this is a prayer that they'll pray in that day. Now, for a Christian to pray these prayers during this age, I think is absolutely sinful. Somebody says, you don't mean that. I certainly do. This is where I think a proper interpretation of Scripture is essential. Now, a great many people want to get rid of this portion of the Word of God. And this is being used more than any other section of the Bible today for people to say, well, this is not the Word of God. This is no expression for a Christian. My point is, who said it was? This is going to be for God's people in that day. For goodness sakes, let's interpret Scripture accurately. And these people under law in that day will pray a prayer as they did in the past under law. And God intends to hear. God intends to bring vengeance. And he says to us today that we are to pray for those that deceitfully use us. It's difficult to do. I grant you that. But that's what we're to do. And God says to you and me today, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. God says, I'll take care of it for you. And when you and I attempt to take matters in our own hands, we get hit in the nose. We want to hit somebody right back in the nose. 
And that's human nature. That's what we want to do. If we don't, God says, if you go ahead and do it, then you're taking the thing in your own hand and you're not walking with me by faith. God says, I want you to walk with me by faith. You remember, he was so brutally treated when he was here on earth. He didn't strike back. Now, he says, I want those that are my own in the church to take that same position. But God's no molly coddle. You're not going to get by with it. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. God says, I intend to take care of this someday. This is a marvelous psalm. What a comfort to be for God's people in that day.